Well, good morning. My name is Brock Ashley, if you don't know me, and I'm very thankful to be getting the opportunity to fill in this morning. And today, uh, the topic that the Lord has put on my heart and what I'd like to talk to you about is something I think that uh, each of us has probably at one point or another or continually uh, asked ourselves. And from a big picture standpoint, it may be, what's my purpose? What's my plan? What's my role? You could also look at it as, what's my calling? So from a Christian standpoint, I think it's something that we, that we think of in terms of a calling. But even before we come to know Christ, it's a question that's on our minds, even as a young person. What's the reason that I'm here? What, what purpose do I serve? So today, uh, that's a pretty big topic to cover, but uh, through the grace of God, I'm going to try to do it just a little bit of justice through His power. So looking at it uh, from the definition that Webster would provide, what I, the definition of a calling is a loud cry or shout of an animal or person, or a strong urge toward a particular way of life or vocation. So the three areas that we're going to delve into today where Christians are called are, first of all, a call to worship, secondly, a call to salvation or election, and then thirdly, a call to vocation or service. And what I want to point out too, as we go through each of these, you can run a calling, if it's from God, through this filter. That callings are always God-initiated. He's doing something inside us. We're not sure exactly what's going on, but we feel a particular burden or a desire to do something. And it, secondly, it always requires a human response. We then have the, the need to respond, one way or the other. But lastly and finally, most importantly, God is always glorified. And I think what's important to realize about that is God is always glorified. That doesn't necessarily mean I am always glorified, right? So Paul would say that in my weakness, he shows strength. And uh, we even see this in the case where Moses says, you know, Lord, I want to just see your glory. You can't handle my glory, right? So he just gets to catch a little bit of the backside of the glory of God through the crevice, and then Moses gets that Shekinah glory on his face. He just catches a little bit of it as it waves by, and that's the way it can be for us in a calling. We just catch a little piece as he goes by. We get a little of the Shekinah glory that maybe falls off of him, but ultimately he's the one getting the glory if it's a calling from God. So like the lady that's got the three phones, and what does this mean to me, right? We're going to dig into that, starting off with a call to worship. All right, to begin with, um, if any of you grew up in church back in the days where they actually handed out bulletins, as I was thinking about this, I recall growing up in the Casey First Baptist Church, when we get the bulletin and it had the order of service, at the top of it, it always said, call to worship. And I guess I never really even understood what that meant until uh, digging into this. But worship is a thing that we're actually all called into. That intrinsically, inside of us, we each have a need, a desire to worship something. Even without Christ, we've got this need to, to perform some act of worship. That worship may be in our garage, may say Harley on the side. It might be our children running around the yard. Uh, if you're anything like me, it could be old number one here. I like to worship me some me, but either way, there's this desire that we have to worship. But the real worship that we're talking about here is the worship that is to God, where He is given glory. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah in chapter 12, and we'll see 
what some of that worship looks like. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll, we'll read through verse 5. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and in that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His deeds among peoples, make mention that His name is exalted, sing to the Lord, for He has done excellent things, and this is known throughout the earth." So you see the people praising the Lord and God getting this glory. And this is the response then from us. And I like what I put up, up here on the screen, what Psalm 105.1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, and make known His deeds among the people. So as we worship God, what we're really doing is we're communicating back to God His great deeds and the things He's done in our life. We're praising Him and we're pointing everything back to Him. It can't be me, it's got to be Him. But there's also power in prayer, too, or power in worship. And another form of worship, which I guess I didn't really consider this until getting into it, is actually prayer or calling out to God. That's another form of our worship to Him, where we call out or cry out. And in fact, uh, so often that the, this phrase for calling out appears in the Old Testament some 700 times that this is, that the Old Testament uh, figures would call out and cry out to God. They were pretty good at getting themselves in trouble. They were also pretty good at asking God to help bail them out of trouble. And in Psalm 99.6, if you turn with me to the left just a little bit, in Psalm 99, verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. So that's the power that resides in worship and in worshipful prayer is there is actually power that he will answer, right? So uh, another example of this would be as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, and he is getting ready to be taken a prisoner by the Roman guards, and they come upon him. He's there with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and these uh, Roman soldiers come up to take him uh, away and eventually to crucify him. And what takes place there in verse 52, Peter gets all excited, and he actually pulls out his sword, and he lops off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Now Jesus has to pick up this ear that's laying on the ground and puts it back on the servant's head and heals him. But uh, what's interesting to point out here is that in verse 52, Jesus tells Peter, put away your sword, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But then in verse 53, he says, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me more than 12 legions of angels? What Jesus is doing is pointing out the power that's there behind prayer. right? And a legion, according to the Roman armies, had around 6,000 troops. Now, I'm from Illinois, not that great at math, but if I do that math correctly, that means 72,000 angels I can call on that will come to my assistance. Now, we know from the Old Testament what one angel could do, right? It could wipe out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Imagine what 72,000 can do. That's the kind of power that's right there for us. Now, Jesus doesn't pray for that. Why? Because the important thing to understand about prayer is it's prayer within God's will. Okay, it wasn't God's will for him. 
And thankfully it wasn't because uh, if it wasn't for what Jesus did next, we wouldn't be sitting here right now being able to praise him. So prayer within God's will provides tremendous power. And that's why we're called to worship. So if you're here today and you've joined us in worship or you've joined us in prayer, congratulations, you have answered the call from God. Hey, you're one for one. You can go to McDonald's feeling good about yourself. God called, you answered, way to go. Maybe we should stop there. But no, we'll, we'll go on. Next, let's look at the call to salvation. Now, salvation, or it could also be called election, uh, has often been argued this idea of predetermination or election, where God elected us even before time began, or free will. And this has been an argument that's been going on probably since the inception of the church. That did God predetermine it, or do I get a choice in it? And our answer as a church is yes. Now, that may seem like a cop-out, like you didn't really answer the question, but uh, what I first have to ask you is this. How big is your God? Is your God omniscient? Is he all-powerful? Is he the God of Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, This, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So God is on the outside of time looking down. He sees both the beginning and the end. And let me give you a, an example. If you and I were to go to the horse track together, and no, I'm not advocating gambling on horses, but just track with me for a few minutes. If we were to go to the horse track together, and I have this gift of being able to understand what the outcome is even before it takes place, and we go down to the window to bet on the ponies, what kind of a fool would I have to be to bet on a loser, right? Right? Who on earth would go down and bet on horse seven? He's clearly going to lose. And if you're anything like me, and this probably says a little bit about my character, I'm not just going down to bet on number one. I'm betting the trifecta, baby. I'm going one, two, three in order, and I'm probably doubling down. So if you're God and you understand the outcome even before it takes place, how silly would he be to choose you if you weren't going to choose him, right? So he chooses you because he already knows ahead of time you're going to choose him, and therefore you become the elect. So congratulations. If you're in here and you're a believer of Jesus, you're a winner. No matter what, right? He's chosen you. You've chose him. And this is this argument between predetermination and free will. And just to bring that all back full circle and away from a, a horse gambling reference to the Bible, go with me back to the left to Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And if you're struggling to find Joel, he's after Hosea. So if you're in Isaiah, go to the right a little bit, and you'll find the small book of Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, this is what he says. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant who the Lord called. So the Lord calls, but the people call. Right? So the people call and they receive salvation, but that's the people that the Lord was going to call anyway. So hopefully that wasn't more confusing, that was less confusing. But at the end of this, the next step that happens is after we are called to salvation, we are also called by a new name. So in receiving, in responding to Christ and what he's initiating within us, we then are called a new name as we take this new covenant. If you turn with me back to the Old Covenant in Genesis chapter 17, 
verse 5, as Jesus is making a covenant with Abraham, Abram at this time, he says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. So as he's making this covenant, he does this strange thing. He changes Abram's name. And what he does is he inserts the letter H. So the letter H in Hebrew is also, the way they would say it is the letter He or Ha. And that's synonymous in the Hebrew language with breath. So as God is making this covenant with Abraham, what he's really doing, what he's showing to us, is he's inserting his breath within the name of Abraham. And that's what takes place with us at salvation, is he actually gives us that breath of life, that he, that ha, into us, and then we are connected with him from a spiritual level. So if we're sitting here and we're not in a spot where we're saved, we're actually dead spiritually. We are dead people walking until we receive that breath of life. And we receive a new name. And what Paul says in Romans in the ninth chapter, all the way to the right, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, we'll pick up in verse 24. He says, Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So this is a new name that we receive upon salvation. We are called sons and daughters of the living God. And the next thing that takes place is that we were also, what 1 Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, we were also called out of the darkness. In fact, what he says here is, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So this name change comes with these added benefits. It comes with us being called out of this place of darkness, out of this lack of understanding, to become a special people. I like what the old King James says, a peculiar people. That's, that's how you all are in here today. You're all a bunch of peculiar people. And we are a peculiar people to the world, right? They do not understand what we do or what we don't do until they come into this relationship where they can also be called out of the darkness. <clears throat> Thirdly, we are called to vocation. So now we're in a spot where we have responded to this initiation of God to salvation. We've, we've responded to this, and He is being glorified in our lives. And by the way, uh, looking around the room and knowing some of the stories in here, and any of you know mine, uh, we, when we come to salvation, it's very much God getting glory, right? Because there's no way we could do that thing on our own. But <clears throat> once we're in that spot, now we are, we're called into vocation or service. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, what Paul writes here is, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is it that we have to do? There are good works that were prepared for us to do even before before when? Even before time began, right? There are good things that he has for us to do. <clears throat> All right, 
Now what? There are good works. What works are there for me to do? Well, there are different ways that we can be called into a vocation or into a service. The first of which is really the one I think that, that we think about, and that would be a very dynamic calling, where, where our career trajectory is completely changed. And in the case of the Apostle Paul, this is what takes place. In Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus, and as he's walking on the road, I'm guessing he thinks he's got his life pretty well in order. I mean, he's on a career trajectory. He's a Hebrew among Hebrews. He is uh, one of the young, bright, rising stars in the Sanhedrin. And what takes place? None other than the bright, shining light of Christ Jesus. And it completely changes everything for Paul. He's blinded. He's completely redirected. And in Romans 1.1, he says, I, Paul, am called to be an apostle. I'm called to be a sent one, separated unto Jesus Christ. Right? He is called, and then he is separated a very different career path than what he was on. And that's a calling that we can receive, right? And I would, I would say most of the time when it's a very different calling where you're being redirected completely out of the path you're already in, that's probably going to be something fairly dynamic. God's going to make that clear in your life. He doesn't want it to be left to wonder or to guess. The other way we're called into vocation, and I think this is a spot that most of us fall into, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, Paul writes this, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I, ordained in all the churches, has, was anyone called while circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised, let him not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters." Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. And if he who called in the Lord while a slave is a freed man, likewise he who is called while free is Christ's slaves. <clears throat> you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. So the second way that we're called into vocation is actually in the vocation that we're already in, right? We are called to be a school teacher. We are called to be a carpenter. We are called to be an engineer, a stay-at-home mom. We're called to be in that position. We are called to be where we exist. I put it on the screen for you, not as we exist. So what Paul's saying when he's talking about circumcision, uncircumcision, he's talking about your fleshly standpoint. Don't, you don't have to change where you're at, but you have to change internally where you're at. And that's the spot where really we can have some of the greatest impact, is where we stay in the spot that he's already put us, but then we have this dynamic change in our life because they're the folks who know us the best, right? They know that old guy that used to talk like that, and now he doesn't talk like that. What in the world happened to Bob? Why doesn't he tell dirty jokes anymore? Those were pretty funny. Now he's Mr. Clean Cut. He can be funny in a clean way, right? He doesn't go to the horse track with Brock and bet on ponies. I'm so thankful for that guy. But either way, either way our calling takes place vocationally, the end result is we are never the same and God is glorified. And if you think with me to the story of Esther, we've been going through this story in children's church. And Esther was a young lady. Her family was taken out of Israel in the captivity uh, around 586 B.C., into Babylon. And at some point in time, her parents had died. 
And at this point, she's an orphan, and her cousin Mordecai takes her in and raises her as his own daughter. Now, in, in the meantime, the Medo-Persian Empire had now taken over, and this guy named King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, is in charge. And this guy loved to have himself some drinking parties. And as he sits around, he's drinking with his buddies, having a good time, he tells one of his servants, hey, go get Queen Vashti. I want to show off to my buddies just how good-looking my queen is. Well, Queen Vashti is tired of his drunk buddies staring at her, and she says, no, I'm not going to do it. So the king makes a decision, it's time for me to find a new queen. And what better way to find a new queen than have myself a beauty pageant, right? All across all my lands, bring me in all the best-looking women, and I'm going to pick a new queen. So wouldn't you know it that Esther ends up being one of the young ladies that's chosen to be in the beauty pageant. And we read that Esther that King Xerxes loved her above all the others, and she becomes queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. Amazing, right? Meanwhile, this evil guy named Haman has a particular uh, hatred for the Jews, especially Mordecai, her adopted father. And he decides that he is going to trick King Xerxes into signing this decree that says, on a given day, at a given time, all Jewish people can be killed. And oh, by the way, you can take all their stuff. So pretty good idea, as the Jewish people were fairly successful. Now, knowing this plot was all taking place, Mordecai sends someone in to talk to Esther so she can go in and talk to the king and stop their people from being wiped out, completely annihilated. Now, if you turn with me back to Esther chapter 4, this is what Mordecai says to her. as Esther is debating whether or not to go to the king, because... The issue is, if she goes into the king, and this is this way for anyone at this time, if you go into the king and you haven't been invited in, and he doesn't extend his scepter, you're put to death. If he does extend his scepter, you can live. So there's a definite risk that she's taking by going into the king completely uninvited. And this is Mordecai's response to her in verse 13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Great faith he has in God to to preserve his people. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to a kingdom, have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, Esther's calling was to be right there in that spot that she was already in for just the time such as this. And what she was able to do with it was save her people. And I put up here on the screen from one of the ladies' Bible studies that I borrowed, where your burden and your talent collide, there you'll find your calling. So where you're burdened, and Esther is burdened for her people, and she has this talent. Now what is Esther's talent, right? What does the Bible tell us her talent is? For all of you out there that think you don't have a talent and don't have a gift, does anybody know? She was hot! That's her talent. She's good looking. It doesn't say she can play the trumpet. It doesn't say she can do calculus. It doesn't say she could balance your checkbook. No, she's just pretty. There's no other talent there for her. And yet, God took the thing she had, and he used that so that she could fulfill her calling, right? So for each of us here today, we have got something that we're good at. We may not want to see it that way, but God does. And he has put you in a spot in order to do good works that he had set aside beforehand to be able to fulfill what is burdening you. 
I think each of us has got something that just burns inside us. Man, I'd like to see something happen there. So then, lastly, on our last slide, the most popular thing to talk about is what we are not called to. And we are not called to comfort. This is unpopular to say, but we are not called to be comfortable. In Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler, as he's known in the Gospels, approaches Jesus. And what he says in verse uh, 16 is, Now behold, one came to him and says, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus said it is, Why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. But, you, but if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. So this young man says to him, well, which ones? Name them off. And Jesus said, well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man, you can just see his chest puffing up a little bit as he says, hey, all these I have kept for my youth. What do I still lack? I'm doing pretty good. I checked every one off the box. And Jesus says to him, if you want to be perfect, and in the Greek that word perfect could also be complete or mature, go and sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And the young man heard this, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what this young man had is he had a desire, to a certain extent, to follow the Lord. But he also had comfort back here, as he had these great possessions he could go back and rely on. And what I put up there, what he, he had, I've, I've just come up with this new term. He had meatloaf faith, right? What is meatloaf faith? I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. No, no, he won't do that. I'd do anything for you, but not that thing. I mean, come on, surely you've got to be kidding me, not that. I mean, you, you've got the wrong guy. I can't do that. I mean, don't you want me to be a good steward, right? You've given me these possessions. Don't you want me to be a good steward with them? Now, notice what Jesus tells him to do with his money. He doesn't say, go down there and rack up a bar tab. He says, go and give it to the poor. He's telling him to go do a good thing with it. And Solomon, as we've been studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, has tried to find comfort in all these earthly things, right? That's really the point that we're coming to. And each time he comes up with, it's hevel, it's vapor. It's a waste. And this is Jesus' point to this young man. You've got comfort resting not in me, but in your stuff. And comfort is one of the most effective things that Satan uses against us right now as a church, right? We're comfortable, and we don't want to get out of our comfort zone, so we just don't do anything. And essentially, we render the church impotent, right? We're ineffective because we're too comfortable in what we have going on. And I like this quote I put up here from David Platt. What if we stopped asking how much we can spare or what we have left over and started asking, what is it going to take? I see a need. I see something needs done. And instead of thinking, boy, if I just had time, if I just had the time to take care of that thing, I would take care of it. But I'm busy. I got too much going on. Instead, if we said, listen, what is it going to take to fix that? Lord, you're putting this on my heart. You've put this in my path. What's it going to take to correct that situation? I think we'd be amazed to find out what would take place. In the places where the gospel is spreading the most, it just so happens are also the places where the church is most heavily persecuted. 
because they are one thing. They are not comfortable, but they are loving on the Lord. So the question we have back to ourselves is, is removing ourselves from this comfort zone, taking this risk, is Jesus worth that? Is it worth it? So if you fast forward with me just a little bit in the 19th chapter of Matthew, Peter in verse 27 says to the Lord, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Peter says, listen, we've left everything for you. You've just reprimanded this guy. But what about us who have already left everything? So Jesus says to him in verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. That's the risk reward. That's the gain that we have from taking this risk that we're talking about. Yeah, we might have comfort in the temporal and the stuff that's around us, but understand it's all going to go away. Whatever we're putting our trust in that's outside of Jesus is all going to go away. But the promise here is you're going to receive great things, not just for today, but you're going to receive them for eternity. That's, some, that's not even a gamble. That's a pretty great investment to make. And, and what I didn't put here on the notes too, when we're called out of comfort, understand that what Jesus says in John chapter 14, in John 14, I think it's verse 14, what his promise is to give us. Yeah, I'm sorry, verse, verse uh, 15. And if, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. And in some versions, that's also comforter, that he may abide with you forever. So yes, it may be uncomfortable for a time, but understand that as we are uncomfortable and we step out on faith through some power that I cannot explain, it can only be attributed to God, we somehow become comfortable through his comforter in the uncomfortable things that he's called us out to do. He will not leave us or forsake us. So anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for a calling you've put on each one of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us out of the darkness. Thank you, Father, you've called us to worship, to get the opportunity even to worship you, an eternal God. What a tremendous thing that is, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you have called us into service for you, that we are even worthy to serve you, Lord. It's, it's truly amazing. Lord, uh, as you are, are working in people's lives and in people's hearts, as you're initiating things, I pray that we would have the courage to take that risk to respond in a positive way so that you can be glorified. So Lord, I lift all these things up to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.